We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 15. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Okay. Well, the first thing to say is in your booklet, uh, on page 8, line 1, there's a typo. (laughs) Your kingdom come, an empty phrase... Matthew 16, of course not Matthew 16, it's Matthew 6. (laughs) Um, So you might just want to correct that there. Look, I thought what we'd do tonight was to kick off by thinking about where we're drawing the theme of this conference from. As you've heard, Paul Harrington can't be with us, and the idea was that I would speak under the banner of your kingdom come, and he would speak under the banner of your will be done. Uh, And so to kind of orient us in those phrases, I thought we might uh, head back to the Lord's Prayer, which is where they're drawn from, and look at what it is that Jesus is saying to us when he teaches us to pray this way. As I take it you all know, uh, the shocking message of the New Testament, the shocking message of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, came to save sinners. He didn't come for good people. He came to save sinners. The more shocking message of the New Testament is that we're all sinners. There are no good people, really. When it comes down to it, Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and that means each and every one of us, whether we feel like we're rank, whether we feel like we're religious, whether we feel like we're wrong, whether we feel like we're right, In God's judgment, we're all sinners. We all need a saviour. And the interesting thing you see as you read through your New Testament is you see that Jesus addresses different groups of people, different groups of sinners, some who are very conscious of the fact that they are sinners and some who feel that they are right and they are in a good place with God. Some who really need to just hear the message of the gospel, repent and believe... Some who need to hear, okay, you're following the living and true God. How are you going to live now that's in line with that belief? Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is the famous Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus giving uh, some extensive teaching to a large crowd. And by and large, I think that crowd is a group of people who were happy to follow him. Happy to be his followers, happy to be known as his people, uh, people who belonged, who were in, as it were, the in crowd. And when we read the Sermon on the Mount, what we get here is Jesus' ethical mandate for his people. You, You think you're a good person? You think you want to follow me? Okay, well let me lay out exactly what that looks like. And oftentimes, as it is with Jesus, when we think we know where we're going and what we're doing and who we need to be to follow him... 
He blows it out of the water. He turns it on its head. He makes it so much more than we could have imagined. And it's in this sermon that Jesus teaches us in Matthew's Gospel how it is we are to pray. The Lord's Prayer. Now you might know the Lord's Prayer from uh, church. Uh, some churches will say it every week. Other churches will say it very frequently uh, as part of their regular corporate gatherings. Some churches have it hung up on boards at the front. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it. But are you familiar with it in its context? Are you familiar with it where it came from? Here in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6. Because when I started looking at this, I realised the Lord's Prayer was coming from quite a, a different place than I might have guessed. It comes to us in this, this block uh, in chapter 6, uh, from verses 1 through to 16, that, uh, beg your pardon, 1 through to 18, that really talks about how Jesus rejects those who are proud in the fact that they belong to God or think they belong to God and whose acts of worship or acts of following God are actually, though they might look good and, and attractive from the outside, are actually hollow. So Jesus' big point in this first half of the chapter is that he is not interested in proud and hollow works, even of those people who are declaring themselves to be his followers. Spiritual pride, thinking you're good in God's eyes, is something that does not wash with him. And Jesus is very quick here to identify the rank hypocrisy in this behaviour. People who think it's important to boast. People who think they are important to God and want others to see that God thinks they are important. People who are really hoping to be important in the eyes of others. And he gives three examples of this. In verses 1 to 4, he has this example of giving to the poor. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. That verse 1 is kind of what captures all of what we're going to look at. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. This is an example of... Not only doing the right thing, but making sure you're doing the right thing for the right reason and not doing the right thing so as to attract glory to yourself. You know, Not as to be the one when the plate's passed around to pull out your wallet and produce the $50 notes and put them in and just make sure enough people are seeing, look how generous I am, look how much I give to church. Jesus says, no, none of that. Don't let your left hand see what your right hand's doing. Your father knows what you're doing and it's, his, it's in his eyes that you want to be right, not in the eyes of the world. So get your giving right and the way you do it. Similarly, at the end, verses 16 through to 18, with fasting. When you fast, that is when you give up food for a period of time, don't look sombre as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it won't be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your father who's unseen, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Same thing. 
it's good to fast, to give up food and to concentrate your time and energy on prayers to God. But don't do that in a way that everyone can see, you know. Uh, walking around, oh man, I'm so hungry. Why are you so hungry? Oh, I haven't eaten for three days because I'm fasting, because I'm praying so much to God. No, forget that. Get yourself dressed, oil on your head, wash your face. Uh, go out and live a life that doesn't declare this to others so that you're not trying to win their approval and their glory and their attention. You're not seeking to fill your grandstand with all these onlookers, but you're playing to a crowd of one, your heavenly Father, who knows what you're doing. And sandwiched in between these two examples, these are examples of uh, prayer and fasting, is this Example, uh, beg your pardon, the example of um, giving and fasting is the example of prayer. And so in Matthew 6, 5 to 15, what we have is Jesus' guide to humble prayer. It's really good for us just to see this. The context of this prayer is what? The context of this prayer is Jesus saying to people, make sure your hearts are right before God. And this is not empty or showy, but that what's going on is, is real but is also business that you are doing for your, in your relationship with your Heavenly Father and that that is primary, not the other eyes who may be watching you. And so what Jesus gives us is the Lord's Prayer, famous prayer. But again, as we see in these verses 5 to 8, it's for exactly the same reason that he gives it. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray in the synagogues, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go to your room, close the door, pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. Don't be someone who thinks showy prayer is impressive to God. Don't be someone who thinks that prayers with lots of stacked up phrases are impressive to God. Don't be someone who thinks that if I get to pray in church or in front of a group of people or, or, or lead a small group, that that's what's impressive to God. No, what God wants is for us to pray here in private to him with only our eyes on him knowing that his eyes are on us. It's a quite a powerful thing, I think. The call here in all of these examples of, uh, of giving, of praying, of fasting is to have a right heart before God and to really be meaning what we're doing for the right reasons and not be doing it for show. The Lord's Prayer is a great way to solve the problem of showy-offy prayer, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's a great way because it's a simple prayer. It's, it's pretty straightforward. It's not high-tech. It doesn't contain a, a whole lot of stuff that is hard to comprehend if you spend some time thinking about it. You pray this prayer, no one's going to look at you and go, wow, that was, that was profound and complex. Think, no, it's just a pretty straightforward prayer. It's also a common prayer. Jesus gave it to all of his disciples so all of his followers pray it. No one can kind of say, my praying is better than your praying, because we're praying exactly the same thing. We have a set prayer from God the Father, uh, to God the Father from the Son that is equal for all of us. None of us can elevate ourselves over each other 
by praying this prayer. And the other thing about it is it's a prayer that zeroes in on God's priorities. All the things that we might heap up in our prayer, all the words that we might pile together, the babbling we do, and the many phrases, the many words that get piled up, uh, they can carry so many wishes, so many hopes, so many aspirations, so many wants. In the Lord's Prayer, we're told, here's what your focus should be. These are the things you come to your Father for. And right at the top of the prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, is the phrase that uh, we repeat again and again when we pray this prayer. Your kingdom come. And as I thought about this, I thought we pray this lots and lots of times. Do we know what it means? Do we know what it means? Are we praying a prayer that we understand? Because we can't really mean it if we don't understand what it means. We can't mean this prayer to God. We can't be praying in the way that God is instructing us to pray if we don't get what these words mean. So what does it mean? Your kingdom come. In the Gospels, the kingdom of God is a big theme. Matthew uses the language of the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of God is the big theme. It's also in the Old Testament too. A a huge theme of the scripture, isn't it? The kingdom of God. You have the great kings of the Old Testament, the the coming of the King Jesus, uh, the kingdom of God. Since King David, God has promised always to rule his people through a godly king. The thing is, if you know your Old Testament, what happened was it kind of looked pretty good in David's day. There was a great king, though he did have his faults, and he ruled over all of God's people. And his son was also a great king, though he also had his faults, and continued to rule over God's people. Although at the end of his reign, things started to tear apart. And as you read through your Old Testament, you see, first of all, the kingdoms divided into two, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and then eventually, through a string of bad kings, uh, a few good ones in there, but mostly bad kings, the whole thing collapses, falls in a heap, And the two kingdoms are sent off into exile. Not only do you have no kings, you have no kingdom. And so the Old Testament leaves us waiting for the king to come and the kingdom to be re-established. And after this exile, we do see the Jewish people return and re-establish Jerusalem. But there's no king. There's no king and it's, it's, it's only a shadow of its former glory. So we hit the New Testament waiting for a king. Someone like David. Someone who's going to rule over all of God's people. Going to hold it all together. And be the king who will lead them in God's ways for all time. And the message of the New Testament is Jesus is the king. Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. The guy who... Uh, went around with a ragtag bunch of who knows who's from the northern regions of Galilee, saying strange things, attracting strange people around him, a very kind of common looking guy in lots of ways. He is the king. He is the king of God's kingdom. More than that, he is God's eternal king and he is going to reign forever. Jesus of Nazareth is the king, the Messiah, the Christ. That's a huge message in the New Testament, isn't it? That Jesus is the king.
In fact, it's such a huge message, it's, it's really one of the big uh, focal points of the Gospels. As you read through uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke, those three Gospels already come to a climax at the point where the Apostle Peter recognises who Jesus is. Jesus says, who do you say I am? Some people say you're Elijah the prophet. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, that is the King. You are the King, the Son of the living God. Bang! That moment of identification. So much of what's been happening in the Gospels up to that point is trying to ram this message home and Peter finally gets it. Not completely, but he gets it. And from then on, those Gospels unfold to tell you not just that he's the king, but what his rule is going to look like and ultimately how he's going to lead his people. John's Gospel doesn't quite do it that way, but it concludes on very much the same note. These things are written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the King, and through believing have life in his name. The Gospels are at pains that you know that Jesus is the King. So what does that mean when you're praying, your kingdom come? When we pray for the kingdom, the kingdom of God to come, for the kingdom to come, what we're praying is that people will acknowledge Jesus as King. The kingdom comes when people acknowledge Jesus as King. As King, Jesus reestablishes God's kingdom. God's kingdom comes with Jesus. The kingdom is the group of people who are sent and acknowledge that Jesus is the king. It's not a worldly kingdom, though. It's not a worldly kingdom. It's not a geopolitical kingdom. It's not a kingdom with borders that you can draw around it and with passports and with nationality like we think of kingdoms. It's not a kingdom that's bound by an ethnic group or a particular tribe or race or language. No, no, no. It's much bigger than that. It's a worldwide fellowship of people across all time who bow their knee and say, Jesus is king, who say, Jesus is my king. When we pray, your kingdom come, what we're praying is that Jesus' kingdom would grow, that more of his kingdom would come, that more people would do exactly that, would bow the knee and say, Jesus Christ, you are my king. That's what we're praying. Your kingdom come. We're praying that more people acknowledge Jesus as king. Why would we want to do that? Why would we want people to acknowledge Jesus as king? Now, I kind of hope that this is not completely uh, opaque to you, but you've got some ideas. Uh, Here's what I think. Why would we want Jesus acknowledged as king? Well, there's a few reasons, and I've I flagged them there on your notes for you. The first one is pretty obvious, I reckon, and it's because he is. He's the king, so it's right and proper and good and orderly that we acknowledge him as the king. It would be a mistake not to call him the king when he is the king. He deserves to be acknowledged as king. He is the king. We want him praised as king, recognized as king, enthroned as king, stood up on high as king, Not doing that is just wrong. Recognising that the king is the king is the right thing to do. So why do we want Jesus acknowledged as king? Just because he is. And that's the right and good thing to do, is to worship the king. The second thing, though, over the page is more than that. 
in acknowledging Jesus as king, when we do that, we, we have salvation from judgment. Now, this is an idea that I trust you all know very well, but we'll just touch on it for a moment, just to make sure. When we acknowledge Jesus as king, what we're really doing is entrusting ourselves to him as his subjects and entrusting that his rule will be a rule over the judgment that we would otherwise have received. The Bible says that a day is coming when sinners will be judged. The Bible says that. Remember I said at the beginning, we're all sinners. We're all sinners, all of us, whether we kind of feel that or whether we don't think we are, it doesn't matter. We are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible says a day is coming when all will be judged. Sinners will be judged. Those who reject God, reject his ways, reject the rule of Jesus as king will be judged. And let's, let's just be really clear about this. The Bible is very plain that this is bad. Okay, This is a bad thing. Uh, we can talk about it in all kinds of different ways. But let's just be crystal clear on this. Facing the judgment of a holy God is a bad and frightening thing. The language that the Bible uses to talk about the judgment of God is really confronting language. It's language of fire and torment and eternal destruction. It, you, you can't water it down. You can't make it less than that. In fact, I'm pretty sure that the reason that we have that language is only because there's nothing stronger. These are the strongest words you can find to describe it. But I imagine the reality uh, is going to be so much worse than even the worst picture we could paint. The Bible is very clear that sinners who reject God and who reject Jesus are facing judgment, and that is a bad thing. So when we pray, your kingdom come, what we're praying is that people would accept Jesus as their Lord and as their Saviour, and by accepting Jesus, accept him as the one who pays the price for their sin through his death on the cross, and who can present them unblemished before the Father. And for whom those people won't have to then face the judgment of God. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're saying, please God, let many people acknowledge Jesus as king so they don't have to face Jesus as judge. Please God, let that happen. Because we care for them, because we love them, because we don't want to see that happen. It sounds scary, and it is scary. And let's not pretend it's not scary. It is scary. And we might think, gosh, wouldn't it be better if that day would never come? If, if it would just kind of, that, that was not what was happening, and in fact, uh, the world would just go on as it was, and there'd be no judgment. Well, I can see why you might think that way. But actually, if judgment never comes, that's terrible. If God doesn't bring his judgment, that's terrible. That leaves all the wrong in the world, all the sin, all the hurt, all the lies, all the damage, unaccounted for. It basically says it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. The worst atrocity you can think of, the most horrible thing that's happened to you, the most shocking thing that you've seen on the news, if there's no judgment, that's God saying, ah, 
some things happen. And God doesn't say that. He says, no, all sin needs to be brought to account because it is bad. And so actually, God's judgment is a good thing. It says that right is right and wrong is wrong and wrong cannot stand and cannot be accepted and cannot be let to go without account. So judgment is actually a good thing to see evil dealt with, to see sin reckoned. The tricky thing about it, of course, is that if people are tied up in evil and sin and wrongdoing, then they face that judgment unless they turn to Jesus. So we pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Let people turn to Jesus so they don't face that judgment. Why would we want Jesus acknowledged as king? Because he is. Because as we acknowledge Jesus as king, accept him as our saviour, put all our trust in him, we have salvation from judgment. But the third thing to say as well is that we want Jesus acknowledged as king because actually his rule as king is fantastic and will be more fantastic. That is, following Jesus is about more than just avoiding judgment. It's not just, you better follow Jesus or else you're going to suffer a terrible judgment. You think, oh, well, I better do it then. It's horrible, but I guess I have to do it. No, it's not like that. Uh, following Jesus is also the best way to live. It's a great way to live. It's the best life you could possibly live. It's not kind of surprising, really, if God made the whole world and everything in it and us and knows how we work and how we should live for his glory and for our own sake, then living his way is going to be a good way to live, right? It's kind of following the maker's instructions. Things work better when you do that. Uh, I certainly can tell you that I mentioned before, I became a believer at, uh, in uni in my first year and my life radically changed. Okay? My life before I was converted was rank pagan life with all the excesses that go with that. And you know, the thing is, at the time, I kind of loved it. I kind of loved that world. I thought, I can do whatever I want. I can be reckless and irresponsible. And uh, there was a, something that I just thought was a kind of freedom in it. But being confronted with the truth about Jesus and realising that he was the king and that I wasn't following him and that I needed to follow him uh, led me also to a very different life that was turbulent to make the transition, make no mistake, and took a long time to work through. But it actually let me stop and see the mess and the damage and all of the stupidity. And they were real things. Hurting other people, hurting myself, making a mess of all kinds of stuff. And as a result, actually not being deeply satisfied, but though there were superficial kind of pleasures and joys and fun, there was lots of deep-seated problems, hurts, anxieties, fears, insecurities, mess. Becoming a follower of Jesus, though, and over time I've grown in the great gifts of what it means to be one of God's people. Security, significance, healing, peace, joy, a consistency. All these things that just put me in such a better place. And having been in this place that the world might say, well, that's kind of everything you want to do, the rock and roll lifestyle, all that kind of stuff. And now being here and saying, this is the better way. There is no question about it. This is the better way. 
It's a better, healthier, fuller, richer, more stable, peaceful, joyful life. And on top of all that, um, flowing, all that flows from, of course, the fact that I have a relationship with the living God. Uh, praise God. And I have a relationship with brothers and sisters all around the world. A worldwide fellowship that if you've ever had the experience to meet Christian people from different places, it is amazing how quickly you notice your family ties and how quickly you're at home in each other's lives. There's so much, so much riches, so much blessing. And not only that, this is just the entree. This is all just the entree. This is just the taster, just the teaser. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. You see, the kingdom of God is only just beginning. It's been begun with Jesus' first coming. When Jesus first came, he said, Repent and believe, for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom has come close, calling people to follow him as king because he was establishing his rule. But that rule is not now yet fully worked out, as you know. Many people still don't follow Jesus as king. And there's still lots of mess and brokenness and damage in the world and still in us, even those of us who follow Jesus. But a day is coming. A day is coming when the kingdom of God, the rule of Jesus, will be fully and completely established. That, that day is when Jesus comes back. After that day of judgment, when all the rebellion is ended, all the evil is gotten rid of, all the brokenness and hurt and damage and sin and rejection is gone, and the kingdom of God is everywhere, in the hearts of all people, and is eternal and enduring where there'll be full peace and joy and security and fellowship and deep, close relationships without barriers or brokenness. There'll be no more pain, no more death, no more mourning. All those things will have passed away. There'll be no more internal conflicts and burdens and struggles and, and knots inside of us. It'll all be gone. And the best is, we'll be living with the King, the Lord Jesus, not just as our King, but as our brother. We'll see God, our Heavenly Father, face to face. We'll be part of the family in one of the rooms of the house, sharing with them. It's unbelievably good, and it's all still to come. The whole creation, consciously and joyfully, under the rule of God, with all the mess and rejection thrown out and destroyed, and gotten rid of forever. It's so good that any experience you could have now pales into insignificance. The best thing you could possibly imagine wouldn't rate a mention in what it's going to be like when Jesus' kingdom is fully established. Now, not only that, but anything you could even conceive of, dream of, imagine, any hope, aspiration, any fantasy will not even rate compared to what it will actually be like. When Jesus' kingdom is fully established. It will be so immeasurably, fantastically, gloriously great. Nothing will compare. All the bad will be gone. Everything that's good will be even better. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying for that. We're praying for that. We're praying that women and men all around the world would acknowledge Jesus as king would call him the king, would submit to him as king, trust in him as the king who's going to care for them and look after them. And he will. We're praying that the, the judgment that they would otherwise face for being sinners like us, 
but unrepentant sinners, were praying that they wouldn't face that judgment, that that wouldn't be what comes of them. We're praying that instead they would join with the Father and the Son, with all of us in eternal, perfect fellowship. When we pray your kingdom come, we're saying, Jesus, close this chapter of history. Close this and establish your kingdom in all its fullness because that's what we want. And as you close it, let many knees bow and many tongues confess on the way so they join us there. That's what we're praying when we pray, your kingdom come. That's what we're praying. So a couple of other things just to finish up on. Did you, know, did you notice sorry, that in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come is pretty near the top? It's pretty up there near the top. Uh, our Father in heaven, we acknowledge God as Father. Uh, hallowed be your name. May your holy, holy name be glorified. Your kingdom come. It's pretty much right at the top. It would seem that this is one of God's great priorities, that his kingdom would come, and moreover, that we would pray for his kingdom to come that that would be the priority of our prayers. And that the question then is, do we really want it? Do we really want this? You know, I hope that what we've been talking about tonight makes it obvious that of course we want this. Who wouldn't want this? But it's good to ask ourselves, just to stop and think, do I really want this? Do I really want people all over the world, all my friends, all my family, everyone around me, everyone I see, do I really want them to turn to Jesus and call him king? Do I really want this part of history to wrap up and for Jesus to come back and for his kingdom to come eternally in all its fullness? Do I really want that? Because here's the thing. If you don't really in your heart want that, if you think, actually... There's kind of reasons why that's awkward or I kind of like this life and can wait for that later or, you know, there's kind of a number of things I can think of why it would be better if Jesus' kingdom didn't come. If you think that, then don't pray the Lord's Prayer. Don't pray the Lord's Prayer. Because wouldn't it be just a devastating irony if you ended up piling together empty phrases throwing all these many words up to God, but didn't really mean them. Wouldn't that be a devastating irony, given that this prayer was given to us so that we didn't do that? This prayer was given to us so that we didn't pile up many words, empty phrases, all kinds of words to, just because these are what you say, or these are what people expect of you, if we didn't mean it. It's a challenge, and I want to make it a real challenge to you. If you don't really want the kingdom to come... The next time you're in church and they pray the Lord's Prayer, just hold back a moment. Because it's kind of, much as I do want you to pray that, I don't want you to pray it hypocritically. I don't want you to pray it and kind of hope that it doesn't happen. We need to ask ourselves, do we share God's priority? The coming of the kingdom is close to the top of God's priorities. And the question is, do we want it? Are our prayers true in this regard? Or are we just chucking out words because that's what you do? Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Which drives us to the final thing. Which is, if we do want it, if we really do want Jesus' kingdom to come, what are we doing about it? 
What are we doing about it? When you get to the end of the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew's Gospel, uh, you see in verse 14 that Jesus reiterates something that was in the prayer. Now, verse 12 said, Forgive us our debts uh, as, we have, uh, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then in verse 14, Jesus says, if you, for- if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. I think what's happening here, Jesus is underscoring the fact that you can't pray this and not do it. Particularly here, emphasising the need to offer forgiveness as you hope to receive it. You, you can't pray this prayer with this line, uh, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors, if you haven't forgiven your debtors. Don't pray empty words. Pray in a way that's consistent with the way you live. In Luke's Gospel, when we get the Lord's Prayer, uh, straight after it, what does Jesus do there? In Luke's Gospel, Jesus sends out his disciples on mission. So he's just taught them, your kingdom come, your will be done. What's that? You want people to submit to me as king and for the kingdom to come? Well, go and make disciples. Get out there and do it. That is, don't pray this and not be involved with it. That's inconsistent. What are you going to do? If you want something, you tend to act in a way that sees it happen in as much as it's your power to to make that so. The Lord's Prayer is not passive. It's a prayer we pray trusting in the sovereignty of God, knowing that nothing happens apart from his will, but also knowing that God in his divine wisdom works through his people to accomplish his ends. So as we submit to his will, and as we are on board with this prayer, your kingdom come, so we should have hearts and minds and hands and feet that say, what can we do? What can we do to be involved with this coming of the kingdom? What can we do? And I think that's what we're going to think about this weekend, isn't it? What can we do to see the coming of the kingdom? It will be different for different ones of us, but we all need to ask the question if we're praying this prayer. What can we do to, see, to be the answer to our own prayers, to see more people honour Jesus as King now and more people prepared for his glorious return and the kingdom that he'll establish eternally. What can we do? I trust that as we explore this, you'll ask yourself the tough questions as well as these obvious big questions. And my prayer is that we'll actually find in God's grace and uh, under his sovereignty together we can do quite a lot and wouldn't that be fantastic to actually be agents of the gospel bringing the good news of Jesus the king to lots of people and then getting to share eternity with them I think together in God's grace and under his sovereignty we can do quite a lot well we'll pick up with all of that tomorrow now I'm going to lead us in a prayer Please join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Thank you, Father, so much for sending your Son, our King Jesus, to save us from our sins and to lead us in eternal life, glorious eternal life. Thank you that it is your priority that the kingdom of Jesus is established. And thank you that it's uh, your purpose to use your people to accomplish your ends. Please, Father, help us this weekend to do good business with you as we ask ourselves, what can we do that is in line with our prayer to see your kingdom come? We trust ourselves to you and we pray confidently because we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.